Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that on us your Spirit would descend, that this afternoon, both through the teaching and preaching of your Word, uh, through uh, the fellowship that takes place, that your Word would have success, uh, that we would uh, be worked on by your Spirit through the preaching of your Word, that we would be conformed more and more to your image, And even as we consider today to truly have the mind of Christ, uh, to imitate uh, the way that he thought, uh, the perspective that he had, um, and his willingness to serve, Uh, Lord, would you be glorified uh, this day in your name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study on the imitation of Christ, uh, and this week we've come to what I have titled... Uh, the imitation of the mind of Christ. Um, what I've also gone ahead and done um, is provided you all with like a scripture glossary of sorts. Um, so that way you don't necessarily have to write down as I say the verse. Here are the verses, the, the majority of verses is that will at some point be referenced. Um, the ones in red here with a little red asterisk are those verses that will specifically exegete and walk through and the others will have some sort of reference. I've also indicated with the one, the two, and the three exactly how they match up according to this outline so you kind of know where they belong um, should you decide to look further into this. So when you hear the mind of Christ, what initially comes to your mind? Like, What do you think of when you hear that phrase? The Ten Commandments? In what way? Yeah, from Philippians, right? Yeah, there's a lot of different um, things that may come to mind. I know from speaking with a brother this week that the first thing that he thought of was not necessarily Philippians 2. For example, you can think of like 1 Corinthians 2.16 where, it's, where Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. Um, in that particular instance, what he's talking about is us having a spiritual mind over against a natural mind, right? The spiritual mind understands and perceives spiritual things, whereas the natural mind cannot. Um, but I think on the whole, um, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong on this, but I think on the whole, a lot of us tend to think of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, where we specifically see have this attitude or this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And this is what we'll be considering today. That's what's behind the title of today's uh, topic. Uh, it's that of having the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ as it relates to serving. Uh, and what I hope to show is that ultimately this is what was behind much of what Christ did. It is his mind or attitude of being willing to serve, to serve despite the glory that he had with his Father before the world began, to serve as the suffering servant for his people, and to leave them an example to follow, and to serve despite the glory he currently has as the exalted King. What we will see, Lord willing, is that this was his very disposition that despite or in light of being the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he was willing to serve. And I use those titles to kind of draw out the, the beauty of his willing to serve, that despite being King of kings and Lord of lords, he's willing to serve. The king of heaven is not like the kings of this world. The kings of this world, they desire their own praise, their own glory, and to be served. This is really how they measure their worth and how they measure their greatness. However, one of the ways the king of heaven shows forth his greatness is by serving, not being served. And this willingness to serve is really the consequent result of his love for his father. It really is the practical outworking of this love. And so we must realize as we walk through this and contemplate these things, this is what we're called to. 
We're called to imitate the mind of Christ, to deny ourselves and to serve one another. That this should be the very disposition that we have within us. And much like Christ's willingness to serve, uh, being a result of the love that he has for his Father, our willingness to serve one another should stem from our love for Christ. And so this is how I want to walk through it. Uh, You see it on the board. We want to look at Christ as the pre-existent servant. We want to look at Christ as we're probably all aware of him as the suffering servant. And then finally, we want to look at Christ as the exalted Kleinian type hyphenation king servant. So those are the three main points. And maybe you're thinking, we're talking about the mind of Christ, and then at the same time, we're talking about his pre-existence. And I hope to show why. Uh, We need to kind of break this down a little bit. Um, One of the things we must understand, well, let me ask you guys, what do you think is meant by pre-existent servant? Have we ever thought of him in that way? Go ahead. As an angel of the Lord? Serving in that way? Sure. Not always, in some sense, right? Because that level of subordination comes in what's called the economic trinity. So, in many ways, what we have is something like this. We have God, as I spelled it right this week, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? They are, in ontologically always equal. But as a result of what was established at some time in eternity past, we have what is called uh, really the everlasting covenant. And it is in light of this covenant that we have uh, really where the Son, in this sense, does become subordinate to the Father. It's what I said is referred to as uh, the economic trinity. Anybody remember what the economic trinity represents? We've heard this term before? No? The economic trinity, there's other things that it's called, or other ways that you may make sense of it, but this is the functional roles of the trinity as it relates to the everlasting covenant that's been established. So that's why Christ could say the Father is greater than I. In what sense or in what light? Because we know that they're equal. But in, that's right. In light of his role as, I would even say, if you're going to say pre-existing servant, you would say uh, covenant servant. So in light of him being the covenant servant, that's his role. That's where he's subordinate to the Father. That's where he comes to serve. Um, Galatians 3.17, just to kind of provide some perspective that, you know, some of this is not abstract per se, but in Galatians 3.17, this is what we see. It says, what I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, did not invalidate, didn't make void, a covenant previously ratified by God. There we have reference to this everlasting covenant that was established in eternity past. The law didn't do away with this. This covenant remained. And we also see in Isaiah 42.1 where we read there, Behold my servant. This is God the Father referring to God the Son as his servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And so what we see here is that Christ's mind or attitude of serving, his willingness to serve, wasn't something that began at the incarnation. This wasn't something that was added to him later. But this is a mind that has existed, you know, or or part of him, if you will, from eternity past. And that truly is phenomenal when you think about it, that here he is, in the Godhead, 
enjoying perfect unity, perfect love, and communion with the Father. And there's a willingness to go serve His Father and to serve His people and to come and to be the suffering servant. That's what we read. When we read in 2 Corinthians 8 9, though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor. This is what's in view. He willingly became that servant. And so that is what is behind this idea of Christ as the pre-existent servant. We've all talked about, you know, him in this way. Uh, This is just more kind of a summary. The pre-existent covenant servant, we could say. But in addition to that, he's also, right, this, this covenant servant is then manifested through his incarnation as what we know as the suffering servant. Last week, uh, we noted that the whole of his life and his death was that of suffering, if you recall. And we could also say that the whole of his life and his death is also what? Serving. That's what he came to do. That's what he even says. He did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this isn't something that should surprise us. This was his disposition, his willingness to serve, despite the glory he had. And I'll probably say this multiple times, but this is what we need to get our mind around. This is what we need to try to comprehend. If Christ was willing to do that in all of his glory, He had true rights. He had true privileges. He was truly worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory. And yet, he served. How much more should we be willing, who have no rights, no privilege, no claim to anything but the wrath of God, really, in reality, that we should be willing to serve? But unfortunately, what is often the case is we want to be served. And we have these, this perspective of ourselves that people should serve us, they should do what we want them to do, and if they're not, we get bent out of shape about it. We need to have a proper perspective that it's not about what people can do for us, but what can we do for them? That needs to be what is driving us, yes. It's funny you mention that because that is going to be the next verse we look at in Mark 9, 33 through 37 here as we move through this idea of the suffering servant and really what he teaches his disciples on what true greatness is. We'll look at the world's perspective of greatness and then we'll look at the biblical perspective and how Christ taught his disciples that. Thank you. Nice lead in. Nice lead in. Now, there are many ways in the Gospels that we see Christ serving. I don't want to minimize those. We see him while he's walking, going to a town. Somebody says, come and heal my daughter. And what does he do? Stops, goes, and heals. There was a willingness that he had to be pressed in on by the physical needs of those around him, and he did it. Uh, But what I want to focus on Uh, There's miracles to to, to heal, to feed, to even bring back to life. Um, uh, But what I want to focus on are two uh, uh, examples in particular from Mark 9 and then John uh, John 13, 3 through 5, and verses 12 through 17. Uh, One of the central themes of Christ's teaching and his interaction with his disciples pertain to that of being a servant. That's what he was manifesting. That's what he exemplified and taught them. Um, Specifically giving them an example of how they ought to act towards one another. That that of being a servant should be the very foundation of our relationship one to another. 
And so we're going to look at first Mark 9, uh, where he teaches the disciples as to what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And then in John 13, that symbolic act of foot washing um, and uh, what was being shown forth in that. There are a lot of references uh, when we see the topic of greatness come up with the disciples. Uh, some of them are Matthew 20, 20 through 28, Luke 22, 24 through 27, Mark 10, 35 through 41, and of course the verse that we're going to be looking at. And there are others, but this hopefully kind of gets you going on other places to see in Scripture where the topic of greatness came up. Um. So what is greatness and how is it manifested? Depending upon who you ask, there's going to be two different views, really. One, a worldly view, and one, a biblical view. So if we think of the worldview, what does the world identify as greatness? Fame. Money. Right? Possessions. That's right. Glory. They look at... Um, it's about really having the first place with the world. Like somebody said it, right? He who dies with the most toys wins, right? And what they want is to be number one. That is the end goal of what they're seeking. To have the most possessions, to have the most servants, to be served, to have the easiest life. That's what the world's view of greatness is. What's the biblical view? Humility. That's right. Uh, Self-denial. That'll be a big one that we come back to. Serving. That's right. Ultimately, what we're going to see is it's not about being number one. It's about the willingness to be last. And what we see in this type of picture is that truly, as we've said before, the world's views and their perspective and the biblical views, opposed, strongly opposed, not even close to one another. That's right. No, that's... Right, we're not even looking for glory. And, but it, what's amazing about what Christ did is that in his condescension, he willingly laid aside his glory and took on the form of a servant. He, he truly came, and this is the whole point, ultimately, kind of the conclusion that we're going to arrive at, is that he was truly the consummate last one. So Mark 9, 37 through 33, is there somebody who would like to read that passage? Mark 9, 33 through 37. Sure. There's, no, that's it. that's it, you're good. This is truly a remarkable interaction where we see love and patience shown by Christ. Think of the setting. He just got done telling them that he was uh, going to die and suffer and that he'd rise again. And their concern is, who's going to be the greatest? 
that seems to be the, the, the focal point for us in general. We always like, we want to be the greatest. We want to be well-known, well-thought-of, and so forth. Uh, so we can certainly understand uh, in some way this conversation. But notice what Christ does. He sits down uh, and teaches them about the realities of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God, not like the kingdoms of this world, uh, the order of the kingdom of God um, and the, the, the greatness there, like, that, that's in the kingdom of God is not defined by uh, the world's definition of greatness, but it's defined by the willingness to be last. Uh, the ways of the kingdom are truly it's counterintuitive. We would think, oh, we want to be great, pursue greatness. Uh, and seek to exalt yourself above those around you. Um, but we see that we are to be last. That's what we see here. Christ says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last. Last of all and servant of all. Uh, what is the meaning conveyed behind the word first? Like when you think of the word first, what are we seeing there? Not necessarily chosen. It's going to be... Well, no, in this case, you're thinking... Um, like When you think of the first... like To be first in this context would be to have a position of authority, to have a position of leadership, uh, to be above others, right? And he's saying, you know, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, um, here's how you go about it. Uh, it would have certain privileges associated with it, a ranking or a status. Um, but what that involves is becoming one who has you know, no privileges or rights or power, right? That, that's true. It's, it's not about the power that you can wield over others. And so you must become last of all. You must seek to serve if you truly want to be great. Uh, what does becoming last of all yield? What does it result in? Reward. Who said that? Yeah, I would say uh, one summary word, everything. That's what it results in, everything. You may not have the possessions of this world, but because you're in Christ and because you're servant of all, you have everything. To be last here on earth, to renounce our so-called rights and privileges and the cultural classifications, uh, to be last here means we are first where it matters most. Uh, first, not in the temporal, not in the things that fade away. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? But first in eternity, in the kingdom of God. And what's amazing there, when we think about being first now, we think about like climbing over each other. When we're first in the kingdom of God, even there we'll be manifesting perfectly that serving attitude. And it's not going to be about being number one there in that sense. We're going to be looking to still be last perfectly. And thankfully it won't be a struggle for us. Mm. that's right and that's where this this idea of serving stems from our love of christ and our desire to see him glorified but christ not only teaches them not only says this but he illustrates it by taking a child in his arms and this may seem like a weird kind of like illustration uh, because children to us, we love them and, you know, they probably get far more attention than they really deserve in some cases. And they, um, but in the ancient world, children were not the focus. Uh, they were held in light esteem and with little regard. And they had no power. They were weak. They were insignificant. And yet, here we have Christ taking a child in his arms and showing what it is to be servant of all. 
to, to, to come and to serve one, to receive one, to be associated with one that can do nothing for you in return, that is truly weak and lowly, uh, to be associated with those who are not of high regard. And this is ultimately what Christ did for us. He was first, he became last. He laid aside rights, privileges, and glory to be a servant, to serve those who were truly helpless. In many ways, we were like that child, if you will. Insignificant, helpless, no hope. And he becomes last to serve us. So he not only taught the necessity, but he exemplified it. He gave an example for himself. So let's look at John 13. John 13, we'll, we're going to break this into two sections. First, verses 3 through 5. Uh, we didn't have time to get into the issue with Peter resisting and kind of what is present there. Um, but then we'll look at verses 12 through 17. Would somebody like to read verses 3 through 5? You got that? We're going to see this girded language a little bit later. But notice, Christ doesn't just simply command them to serve. He could have done that. Um, But what he did do was then show them what it looks like. Uh, He provides an example of what they are to do by taking the position of a slave himself right there in front of them. Even down to the garments. He laid aside his garments, took the towel, girded himself, and, brings, uh, and begins to wash their feet. But to understand the significance of this passage, we must consider how the foot washer was viewed. Does anyone know how that position was viewed in that day? It was the lowest. The, the, the menial tasks were given to that slave. Um... It was something that uh, Jews wouldn't necessarily even allow other Jews to do. It was saved for Gentile slaves. It was saved for women. It was saved for children, which actually goes back to our previous comment on how children were even viewed. And here we have Christ taking the position of a low-level slave. And then you put it in the context of like the timeline, and this is the night before he was going to be crucified. And this is what he's exemplifying for his disciples. Servanthood. He's fully aware of what awaits him, and rather than allowing that to distract him and to kind of like paralyze him, he is focused on instructing his disciples and teaching them about how they were to interact with each other that he's about to depart, here's how you are to live among one another. It's not to pursue your own interests. Rather, it's actually to cast aside your own interests, your own desires, and to serve one another. All right, verses 12 through 16. Who would like to read those? Keith? And so after washing their feet, what he wants to do is to make sure that they understand the significance of what was just done. Um, And so what we see is Jesus says to them, you are correct to call me teacher and Lord, for that's who he is. But notice what we read next, verses 14 and 15, it says, if I then the Lord 
and teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. There's a few things to note here, and it's going to be just what I said pretty much almost every Sunday school now. It's this, and it needs repeating because we have got to understand this. There is no merely calling him Lord and teacher. There is no merely laying a claim to knowing him. Um, But there's an inherent responsibility that follows that. That, you know, we must follow and do as he has done for us. Uh, We need to examine ourselves by this. Do we just lay claim to these things and we're comfortable saying, oh, Lord and teacher, and I know him, and I do this, and I do all the readings, and I study? But the question is, do we do what he's commanded us to do? And that relates to evangelism, to love, to suffering, to serving. Are we doing these things? This is what we have to keep coming back to at the end of the day. Because what we will see is verse 17, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but verse 17 where he specifically says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Um, so there's that inherent obligation. And um, it's, it's not just this, okay, we're, we assent to these things in our mind and in our knowledge, but do we do them? But what is the example um, that is given? Actually, before I jump to that, I did want to give this Ritterboss quote to, to show forth that what he meant by example and this inherent obligation. He says, by the word example, Jesus describes his deed as a rule of life for their future association with each other. That means it's, it's not this optional, you can choose to do this or not. It's a rule of life that he set forth in this example. So we have to ask ourselves, though, what is the example that is in view here? Is it foot washing? No, right? Because if, if it was that, the way that we imitate that would truly be by going around and washing one another's feet. And, um, and I suppose if there's those of you that desire to do that, uh, I mean, have at it. Um, but that is not what is it in view here. What is being uh, shown forth here is that of servanthood. That is the theme that is in view here. Not necessarily the act of foot washing, but taking the lowest position and serving. And as we said, this is what one commentator said, that it's both the foundation and future expectation of their interaction one to another. It is through this example of washing the disciples' feet that Christ sets forth how they're to serve, to deny themselves and their interests on behalf of one another. Uh, That they, like him, must be willing to take that low position, the menial tasks of whatever it is. So often we say, oh, I've done enough, or I've already done this, and we stop there. That should not be our perspective and so that's why, where I reference verse 17. It's not enough just to know these things. Um, the world says you're blessed if you're served. Christ says you're blessed essentially if you serve. Uh, that the way of blessing is through serving. And that's not like a word faith type thing, right? That you're going to be blessed. But that is true, though, according to Christ's word is that truly to be blessed, even as Paul says, Christ has said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that really the true essence of worship? Mm. Mm. Yeah, we're exemplifying. You know, when we all gather together to worship, how we can even energize one another and we're encouraged by one another so we've considered the fact that he most certainly is the pre-existent covenant servant and there's no doubt that during his life he was referred to as the suffering servant Uh, but now we turn our attention to christ as the exalted king servant 
So this is maybe a provocative question, but will Christ serve us in the eschaton? Without looking ahead to the verses right now, (laughs) will he serve us in the eschaton? Have you ever thought about if he will serve us in the eschaton? It may, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Okay, so that's what we're going to end up getting to. Um, Not that particular reference, the one in Luke, but same idea, the general theme. So one way that comes to mind certainly is Christ as our mediator. He will serve us as our high priest for all of eternity. That's what we see in Hebrews 7.25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. There will still be a need for Christ to be our mediator even though we're without sin, because it is through Him that we're without sin, right? And we're clothed, in, okay, we're clothed in Him, and so forth. And there may be other aspects of His serving as well, if we were really to contemplate it. But there's one particular way that I came across, and it's found in Luke 12.37. Let's turn there. Luke 12.37. And this is what we read there. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. This is, as I said, the same language that we see in John, that aspect of girding himself to serve. And this, in the scene here is the eschaton. Uh, This is the time when all of the redeemed have been gathered together for that celebration feast, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And notice what we see here, or rather, maybe what we don't see and what we do see. What we don't see is Christ just sitting on His throne, accepting the praises of His people, which He most assuredly has the right to do, and He's well worthy of. But what we do see is that he is girding himself to serve us once again, to wait on us. And I found myself last night trying to comprehend this. I even told Amanda, I said, I'm trying to like, truly grasp this reality. This isn't like the serving that he displayed in his humiliation when he came as the suffering servant. His appearance will not be like what we read in Isaiah 53.2, where there we see he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That was his appearance in his humiliation. Well, we must understand that when we read about him as the exalted king's servant, he is there in all of his glory, serving us at that event the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. No, the time of, of, of no attraction and beauty is past. That was his humiliation. Now we're talking about him as exalted king, worthy as he's always been of praise and glory, but yet manifesting service in the midst of his glory. It's not that that glory is put aside and he takes this form of a servant again as he did in his... his uh, humiliation but it's in all of his glory as exalted king that he is serving us that's remarkable i highly recommend that you all take time at some point and truly comprehend that because this at the end of the day right what are we talking about when we look at all of this whoops i erased the two you guys know where that goes Right? When we look at all of this, if we were to summarize this, as far as in light of what we've been talking about, right? this is the mind of Christ. The, the servant-minded. This is what we see through and through. It's, it's as if, you know, you have Him here in His... Uh, pre-existent glory here 
in his humiliation, and here in his exaltation. And what you see in each of these, the common theme, the common thread in all of them, the willingness to serve. And what we have to understand is, like I said at this point, when he had pre-existent glory and communion and fellowship with the Father, and here when he's in all of his glory and he's serving us, we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. We think we deserve more. We think we deserve more. But we don't. And that is the perspective that we must have. That we would serve as he is served. And so this is what we're seeking to imitate. Um, From a very high level, the summary could be, you're seeking to imitate the mind of Christ. And this is what we see um, in Philippians 2, 5-7, through if you want to turn over there. This is a passage we know very well. It's a passage that certainly supplies us with great Christological doctrine. However, we must not miss the context in which this passage is set. What was the state of that church? This was a church, if you've been at the men's meeting, you certainly know this. Um, This is a church that certainly was beloved by Paul. He gave him great joy. Um, There's not much rebuke in the the book in general. Um, And as much joy as there was for Paul in regards to this church, there were issues they were dealing with. There were financial, there was financial hardship, there was dissension. You think of uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Um, and he gives them this passage now that we, we come across in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Selfish ambition isn't to be the driving force behind their actions, but rather humility of mind. They are not to merely look out for their own interests, which is a struggle enough for any of us on a day-to-day, but imagine being in the midst of financial hardship and being told, don't look out for your own interests. And how does Paul exhort them? Where does he point them to? Well, it's what we see here. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The example that he gives them, or where he points them, is the humility of Christ. And it is this picture of him emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant, the willingness to serve, that mind um, is what is set forth as the dynamic that is now to be present in the lives of his followers. This is the disposition uh, that we ought to have. He humbles himself and takes the form of a servant. So if he has one who truly deserved all praise, as we've looked at, was willing to humble himself and really be a servant to the utmost, to death, in his glory, and so forth, we should be willing to do the same for one another. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this involve? I have one point of application. One, because I think this summarizes it. You know, on a, on a summary, like I said, it's the mind of Christ, but practical day-to-day, what does this entail? What do you guys think it entails? What would be the one catchphrase, if you will? What's that? Humility is a good one. Self-denial, that's right. That's why I said, somebody mentioned it earlier, and I said, like, that is what we'll be coming back to. It ultimately boils down, this is the crux of the issue, that we would deny ourselves. If we have a willingness to deny ourselves, then uh, there would be nothing that we're willing to not do. Obviously, as long as it doesn't involve sin, there's that little, you know, disclaimer there. Um, This is what it would involve. Laying aside our perceived rights, the things that we think we deserve, the things that we think we're owed, 
the, the way that we think we should be spoken to or whatever the case may be, it's laying all of that aside. As I said, uh, there's a hard stop after saying we deserve the wrath of God. That's it. There's no but. There's no, that is it. And if we could have that perspective, I know it's hard to maintain like day to day in the midst of everything that's going on and the emotions that arise when we interact with people. But if we could always ever have before us, all we truly ever deserve is God's wrath. And yet we have all of this uh, provision from Him through His mercy and grace and we think of Him serving us while we deserved His wrath, we should be willing to do the same for each other. That is the perspective. This is the very core of having the mind of Christ. It's not walking according to the flesh. It's about walking according to the Spirit. To have a spiritual mind, even bringing it back to you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, to truly perceive these things and what we're called to as followers of Christ, to follow in His steps. We must become slaves of one another just as Christ was for us. Anybody have any comments or questions? Additional points? Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult to have our time kind of interrupted and set in upon and um or our possessions like money and 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 so forth to be set in upon where all of a sudden we're like, Okay, you're asking a little bit too much. Um we have to ask ourselves like what is too much though at the end of the day? Because as we've looked at Christ truly gave himself unto death, served all the way unto death. And even in his glory, I just still cannot get past that aspect that in his glory, clothed with glory and praise, you can just imagine when you read Revelation, you hear of holy, holy, holy. And the praise is taking place. And he's girding himself to serve us. That is unbelievable. It truly is an aspect. You know, I always, we often so easily jump to this point right here when we think of the service of Christ. But what I endeavored to show is that really this mind of Christ wasn't just an earthly possession, if you will. But that really, you know, in each stage that is manifested, we see this consistent mind. And that's what we're to have. It's not supposed to be this sporadic this, we're to have the mind of Christ. That's our disposition. That's what should make us up. Yeah. Yeah, much like we looked at in all of these, really, whether it's through evangelism, whether it's through how we suffer, and by our love for one another, they will know that we're His disciples. Through our suffering, we show forth Christ. 
and certainly through our serving we show forth Christ. The world will always look to take uh, and make an excuse for their lack of wanting to acknowledge God and submit to Him, right? And so they'll say religion is, uh, you know, this awful construct that, you know, really suppresses people and whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, we know that it's through each of these ways of imitating Christ that ultimately we show forth Christ to the world, despite what they may say. So, yeah. No, we're good. Yeah, so so that's yeah, so that's a that's a good um, point. I think we need to obey to serve, regardless of whether our heart is right or not. We are commanded to serve; we must serve and deal with the heart issue before the throne of God afterward, or even in the process of it. Um, there, it's not a well. I don't really feel like serving, and so then my heart's not right, so I can't do it. Uh, we would pray that the Lord would sanctify us and grow us where this more and more becomes our disposition without even thinking about it, without even having to contemplate, am I going to serve or am I not going to serve? And we're kind of waffling between the two. It's just almost immediately, oh, a brother needs something, a sister needs something. What is it? I'm there. Mm. Mm. That's right. So I think that's a good point. It's, it's one thing to say this, but this should be our disposition. This is the ultimate end because when we get to heaven and we're in uh, eternity and in glory, we'll be doing this. This will be our disposition perfectly. We'll have the right heart in it, the right motives in it, and we'll truly be seeking in that sense to the fullest to be the last. So, okay, let's go worship.